We're going to uh, be in the book of Revelation. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, we want you to go ahead and uh, open them up to Revelation chapter 10, because uh, we're going to jump straight into this section. All right, so in Revelation chapter 10, uh, we uh, get a, a wonderful picture uh, of it. And remember, Revelation is not here to answer uh, little questions. It's here to ask the big questions of life. And so in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 uh, through 4, uh, it reads like this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. Uh, he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. Uh, he planted his right foot on the sea. All right, so just imagine this, okay? And he planted his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. I'm not going to roar for you. Right, remember, this is a big imagery. Revelation has a bunch of pictures, and so we got to kind of imagine what this uh, giant of a man is doing and looking like. And when he shouted, uh, the voice of the seventh thunder spoke, and when the seventh thunder spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? I, I don't know either, Okay. This is probably the strangest part of the book of Revelation that we're going to be reading uh, in our time together. All right, it is, uh, a lot of it is a lot of imagery that we don't really know what it's saying. All right, we, we can take guesses, and there's lots of people that have lots of different guesses, uh, but we just we don't know. And so I might ask you, do you know what this means? And more than likely, I don't know what it means either. So, well, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Revelation chapters 10 through 14 uh, serve as an interlude. Uh, last week, we talked about the three different judgments that God pours out on the earth. Uh, the seals, and not the animals, but the seals that you break on an envelope. All right, the trumpets and the bulls. And chapters 10 through 14 uh, are between the sixth trumpets and the seventh trumpet. And so it's kind of one of those uh, interlude periods that, again, is trying to ask a big question that we have to understand. And it deals a lot with numbers. All right? It deals with numberology. All right? So we're going to have a bunch of numbers that we have to kind of explain uh, in the idea of a Jewish mindset. I remember nothing in Revelation is new, and whenever it is new, it explains itself. All right, so the numbers that are used are numbers that pop up a lot in the Bible. Uh, they are uh, the following numbers. Make sure you get these, right? Three and a half, 42, 1,260, 2, 7,000, 32, 10, 7, 10, 2, and 666. Okay, you got that all? All right, we're going to try to explain it as we go, and we'll try not to, to miss it. All right, so this interlude is trying to solve the big question. The big question it wants to ask is, why does it seem like the bad guys win? You know, we live in a, a world where we like to tell stories. And the stories that we tell, whether through media or through uh, books, they always seem to have the good guys win in the end. Even though it may be tough and it takes a miracle to happen, the good guys win in the end. But in life, that's not always the case. In life, it can appear, uh, in our lives as well, that the bad guys are winning. And so the questions that we look at in chapters 11 through 13 is trying to answer this question. Why 
our bad guys appear to be winning. And they give it from three different perspectives. In chapter 11, we'll see the perspective of earth. In chapter uh, 12, we'll see the perspective of heaven. And in chapter 13, we're going to see the perspective from hell. And so why, uh, just keep that in mind, why our bad guys seem to be winning. All right, so we're going to jump to chapter 11. We're going to see this perspective uh, from uh, earth, okay? And so let's read together verses 1 through 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar which, with its worshiper, but exclude the outer courts. Do not measure it, because if it has been, it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, math whizzes out there. 42 months is how long? What's that? Three and a half years. Okay. All right. This number is going to appear over and over and over again. So I'm going to ask you guys, how, much, how long is that? And you guys are going to say? All right. This is a very interactive sermon, okay? So we want to make sure that you guys are practicing this, okay? All right. Three and a half years. All right. What we're talking about is what a lot of people call the tribulation period. All right, and they uh, say that for three and a half years, there's going to be this very bad thing. And, and whether or not it's a literal three and a half years... I don't know. You know, maybe. You know, remember John is writing in these visions, and, and maybe it means something else. I don't know. It could be literally. All right? But more than likely, it might not be. All right? For the Jews, uh, we have to look at their number system. Uh, for the Jews, uh, seven was the perfect number. All right? We see that over and over in the Bible. Things come in numbers of sevens. All right? and, and this is good. All right, this right, if they read seven in the Bible, they think, ah, oh, perfect. All right, but when you get to uh, three and a half, that's half of seven. All right, and that, when they read it, is, oh no, look out. All right, they just kind of have that in their mind. Jewish Christians would have read this and been like, oh, something bad is happening. All right, and we look at their history uh, and, and we see that. So time for a little bit of history lesson. Ready? All right, how many love history? All right, so here's a little bit of history lesson. The Israelites, they were conquered, all right? And this was God's punishment against the Israelites. They were conquered by the Babylonians, who were in turn conquered by the Persians, who were in turn conquered by the Greeks. And a guy by the name of Alexander uh, the the Great came in and and wiped out everything, took took over all the Persian Empire up to India, tried to conquer India and lost. And he came back and he died. And he died without an heir. And so his four generals decided, hey, this is a big empire. It's bigger than all one of us can handle. Let's split it up into fourths. And so they each took a fourth. Now, for the Israelites, this meant that two of them uh, were a problem. They were conquering them. They were the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Right, and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they fought over Israel back and forth. And then finally, the Seleucids won. And one of the kings of the Seleucids was a guy by the name of Antiochus. And Antiochus decided that everyone in his kingdom needed to be a Greek. And so that meant everyone needed to worship the Greek gods. And so he went into Jerusalem and he set up an idol to Zeus. All right? How many Jews would have been happy about that? Not very many. But more than that, he went to the altar of God and he took a pig. All right? And he sacrificed the pig on the altar of God to Zeus. And this made the Jews angry. And they decided to rebel. And it took them three and a half years to finally march into Jerusalem and to take Jerusalem over. And so for three and a half years of the Jewish life, 
they had an altar that was the altar of God that was having pigs sacrificed on it. It was bad. It was terrible. They didn't like it. Then uh, the Romans came in and conquered the Jews again. And the Romans, the Jews didn't like them for one reason or another. And so they were constantly rebelling. But their most successful rebellion took place in uh, 67 AD. And they defeated not just one uh, legion, but two legions of Roman soldiers. And this made the Roman Empire angry. And so the emperor sent his best legions and his best generals to go and squash the Jews. And they came and they surrounded Jerusalem. And because of some infighting within Jerusalem itself, Jerusalem fell. And and they destroyed everything. They tore down the temple. And from the start of the rebellion until the temple was torn down was three and a half years. There was this guy that was Jewish that, that walked the earth. And he ministered to the sick and the afflicted and the poor. And he showed them the ways of God. And for three and a half years, he was with us until they took him and they crucified him on a cross. The Messiah ministered for three and a half years. And everything bad in recent Jewish memory took place in three and a half years. And so when the Jewish Christians are reading this, and they read, this is trampled for 42 months, we're not necessarily told what that means. All we know is this, it's not good. And in this next verse, we read what God is going to do. It says, I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. All right, so they're prophesying for three and a half years. They were clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, they are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. And so what we see is this, this two, two witnesses coming. Do we know what this means? No. Maybe. Lots of ideas out there. What we do know is this, in the Jewish system of legal witnesses, you needed two people to be there, to make anything valid before a judge. And so maybe that's what this is referencing. These guys are going to be important. They're going to remind us. Maybe what God is saying is there are going to be times in your lives where it is tough. And when those times come, God is going to bring witnesses into your life. I've experienced some of this. When life gets tough, God brings to mind through people, through preachers, through, through spiritual mentors, Verses from the Bible that help me get through it. Maybe that's what these two witnesses are. These two witnesses, they do kind of cool things in verse 6, or verse 5. We're told that if anyone tries to harm them, uh, fire comes out of their mouth and devours the enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. In verse 6, they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they uh, want. And so what these guys do when someone comes after them is they breathe fire out of their mouth. How awesome would that be? All right, Kevin says, yes. I want that power. All right, who are these guys? Again, we have no idea. Some people have lots of ideas. All right, we don't know. But as we read this, our Old Testament memory should be jogged a little bit. I mean, how long are they prophesying for? Three and a half years. 
And they're told that that entire time, those three and a half years, they are allowed to keep the rain from coming. Who in the Old Testament prayed for three and a half years that rain would not come? Elijah. And Elijah, at the end of those three and a half years, brought all of the Israelites together on Mount Carmel. He said, let's see who is a better God, the Lord Almighty or Baal. And they each sacrificed an animal and prayed for their gods to bring down fire from heaven. And who was it that brought fire down? It was Elijah. Breathing fire out of their mouths. Maybe we're supposed to be remembering Elijah, this powerful preacher. The other guy has the power to turn water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who did that in the Old Testament? Moses. And maybe we're talking about the spirit of these two great prophets, the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And maybe that's what the witnesses are. Maybe, maybe they're literally Moses and Elijah. Maybe not. We don't know. But these two men, they come and they're great. And they do great things. Well, it doesn't end well for them, okay? In verse 7, we read that when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And their bodies will lay in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. That number again. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and they will celebrate by sending each other's gifts. It's Christmas, all right? Because, Christmas for the bad guys. All right, and because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And it doesn't look good, does it? In fact, it looks like the bad guys are winning. They have defeated these witnesses, these these witnesses of God that come from God, that have all kinds of power, and they've defeated them. But then this happens. After the three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. And this is the perspective from earth. It looks like the bad guys are winning. But in the end, they don't. See, there are going to be times in your life where you're called to be a witness for God. You might be called to be a witness to your families, and it's going to be tough. You're going to be called to be a witness for God in your communities, and it's going to be hard. You're going to be called to be a witness to God in your workplaces, and it's going to feel like you are dying because of the insults because of what they say about you, because of how they treat you. And it's going to be rough. And you may have to suffer. And you may have to figuratively die. But what we see here is that's just a short time. Three and a half days. 
Can you be dead before the world for three and a half days as they laugh at you, as they mock you, as they scorn you? Because if you can hold on, God will show up. And when God shows up, he doesn't just take out two of their witnesses. He takes out 7,000 of them. And God completely overpowers and overwhelms his enemy. The message of Revelation to the churches is hold on. It may be tough. You may be dead, but hold on. Because when God comes, he wins. So that's the perspective of earth from chapter 11. We get to chapter 12 and we see the perspective of why do bad things happen or why do the bad guys seem to win uh, from the perspective of heaven. And this is how it reads. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Right, with, so this is a really big lady, right? Clothed with the sun, the moon was under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, she cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child in a, the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nation with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care for 1,260 days, which is how long? What does this mean? Do you know what this means? Well, we know what some of it means. When the dragon, we're told here in a couple of verses, is the devil, Satan. The male child is obviously Christ, because that's how Revelation describes him. He who rules with an iron scepter. The woman is... We don't know. Because she has children that are, are us. You know, so I don't, I don't, we don't know. This is probably the, my favorite chapter of Revelation because of the imagery that pops up and, and what it seems to be saying. But a lot of it, again, we don't really know. We, we do read this. The war broke out in verse 7 in heaven. Michael all right, he's an MMA fighter. He's taken out a dragon, all right, and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, uh, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And all of God's people said, all of God's people said, no, they said, look out. When the dragon is here, do we understand that? Our enemy is prowling around us like a lion waiting to devour us. And he is here on this earth awaiting us to mess up. Waiting his moment to attack us. And we have to be aware of that. Well, in heaven there is a voice in verse 10 that says, Now has come the power of, has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accusers of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. 
And they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so as much to shrink from death. And the great news we get from the perspective of heaven is this. The dragon is here, yes, but his days are numbered. While we need to be aware that he is prowling around waiting to devour us, he has already lost the war. And the battle that we fight now is the battle for people's souls. And when we forget that, we mess up. The battle that we should be fighting is not for this political agenda or that. It's not so that this, thing could ha- this great thing could happen or that. Our battle is for individual lives to go to heaven. That is the battle now. Because the war is already over. And we got to decide, are we going to fight for the lives of others or not? The devil, his time is numbered. Because when the Lamb of God came to this earth and stretched his hands out and bled for us, the war was done. The devil now really only has three tools that he uses. And none of them have power over us. The devil is a liar. And he'll make you believe things about you that that are not true. He'll make you look in a mirror and say, man, I, I don't like what I see. He will make you think about your kids and say, man, I am a terrible parent. He will tell you different things that you will believe. And you will live your life the way he wants you to live rather than the way God wants you to live. But we have a God who looks at us and says, you are worthy of me dying for. And the power of the blood conquers the lies of the devil because that's all they are. The devil is an accuser. He sits up at God's throne and says, did you hear what Tony did? Did you see how he just messed up? And though he accuses us day and night before God, we have a Messiah who says, I paid for that. And the mistakes that we make, the accusations that are brought against us, it has already been taken care of by the blood of the Lamb. The devil, he is an intimidator. He's a bunch of middle school boys trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. And far too often we allow the, imit- the intimidation that he brings to change the way we're living. But the power of God hurled the devil out of heaven. The devil loses. And the power of God defeats any intimidation that he has. And the only power the devil has in your life is the power that you give him. Because we have a Messiah, a Savior who rules the world with an iron scepter, who came and died for us, and has broken the power that Satan has over us. That is the perspective of heaven. It may seem like the devil is winning, but in the end, God wins. The last perspective is in verse 13, chapter 13, and it's the perspective of hell. And it reads like this in verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns. Where do we see that before? 
Oh yeah, it's the same description of the dragon uh, in chapter 12. This beast imitates the dragon. And in verse 2, we're told that the beast resembled a leopard. He had feet like a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Do you know what this means? Well, in prophecy, when you have beasts coming out like this, it is always nations. And this beast that is coming out of the sea is a nations that are listening to the dragon and doing the dragon's will. Who is this nation? I don't know. Maybe it's Haiti. Or a nation like Haiti whose official religion is voodoo. Maybe it's a nation like China who is humanistic in its communism but yet has the worst human rights violations in all of the world. Maybe, maybe it's a nation like Cambodia who unofficially condones sex trafficking of its women and children. Maybe you've heard of this one nation. There's this nation where you cannot talk about Jesus and it's public school systems, but you can talk about homosexuality, witchcraft, gay marriage. There's this one nation that it is a $50,000 fine to kill a bald eagle, but you cannot tell a, a pregnant teenager to tell her parents that she's about to kill the life that's in her womb. There's this one nation where you cannot set up a nativity on public space, but yet the federal government in 1989 paid for an art exhibit, which, amongst other things, had a crucifix in the artist's urine. We live with the beasts all around us. It is not just nations that are out there. It's our own nation. And it does the will of the dragon. Do we understand that? There's a, another beast that comes out in verse 11. It says, I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns. It was like a lamb. It represents and imitates the lamb of God. All right, and it speaks like a dragon. It exercised the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And this is a beast of false religion. And when evil governments and false religion work together, we have hell on earth. And it appears like the bad guys are winning. And we're told that uh, they cause everyone to have a mark of a beast, 666, and you put it on your hand and on your forehead. What is this? Some people think it's these subdermal scanners that would be placed on. I, I don't know. You know. A generation ago, it was UPCs. When we have all these crazy ideas of what the mark of the beast is and how we are not going to be marked that way, and yet... When you go into the convenience store and you pick up that magazine, what magazine is it? Or we check your URLs on your computer, what are you looking at when no one else is looking? And what are the, the movies that you watch? The shows that you like to sit around at night and listen to? What are the things that you're buying? 
What are the jokes that you're laughing at? What are you talking about? Is it any different than the rest of the world? Because we fight that we're not going to have the mark of the beast in whatever form we think it's going to come in, but we smell like the beast. And if we smell like the beast, and if the world can't tell a difference between Christians and non-Christians, when Jesus comes back, will he be able to? We cannot imitate the beasts. There's another mark in Revelation. We read about it last week in chapter 7, and it's the mark that God places upon his followers. The seal of the Holy Spirit. And I think what we're talking about, when we're talking about the the mark of the beast, it isn't necessarily anything special that's going to be placed on us. It's how we act and how we think. Do we act and think like the rest of the world? See, we have a choice. These beasts that are here, they may seem like they're winning, but when Jesus comes back, they're done. They are puppets of God. And God is controlling the strings. And when God comes back, He cuts those strings and they are limp. And those who have the mark of the beast, when God comes back, will not be able to do anything. So you have a choice. Who do you want to be marked by? Do you want to be marked by the beasts that we see all around us? Do you want to smell like them? Do you want to look like them? Do you want to act like them? Or do you want to be marked with the Holy Spirit? That's the choice you have to make. Who are you going to follow? Paul said, do not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how you act now tells us what side you're on. Which side are you on? Will you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for the images that John has written down to us. And though it can seem weird, and though it can seem strange and and inexplicable, Lord, we're grateful that you have shown wisdom. Father, you are mighty. And though it may seem like this world is not good, and though it may seem like the bad guys are winning right now, we know that in the end, you've already won. You've won 2,000 years ago when you sent your son who died on a cross so that we might have forgiveness. And Lord, when he comes back, I pray that we will not smell like the beast that we live with, but rather, Lord, that we'll be marked and sealed by your Holy Spirit. I ask these things in your name. Amen.